Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. Help, I'm drowning in a blue wave. Just kidding. This week's episode is brought to you by Groa, the intelligent, innovative, stylish brilliance that is the Groa maker of faucets and showering products. It is pronounced Groa, but it's spelled G-R-O-H-E. This is a company that is renowned worldwide for their German engineering, cosmopolitan style, intuitive performance and sustainability. Grow products feel like they were designed just for you. Yes, you. Turn up your shower experience with Grow or Smart Control, the latest in shower customization technology. Smart Control lets you manage up to three bath and shower functions with one seamless control. You can declutter your shower with wool and elevate your shower experience at the same time. I have done it. It has changed my shower experience. You have to check this thing out. It's gorgeous, personalizable intuitive they have these preset temperatures and volume controls it feels like your shower just turned into a smartphone um, they are uh, available you can check them out at growa.us slash hive once again learn about grower smart control at growa.us slash hive that's g-r-o-h-e dot u-s slash hive Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. We're going to start this week off with a very special guest, John Kelly. Hi, John. Hi, Nick. How are you? Good. I'm so uh, great. I actually, I'm so great, Nick. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Before we get to the blue wave and all that other fun stuff, um, we have a special guest after you and I will will banter for 10 minutes. But um, I just want to I just want to start with a prayer for Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg's ribs. Ooh, I um, know. I, I think we should start a GoFundMe campaign to keep her hospitalized. Until November third, twenty twenty, the next election. Uh, if you're into it, let me know. We can we can sign up and uh, and get this thing going. I'm terrified for her, honestly. Um, all right, let's jump in. So, so on one serious note, Nick, I, I want to jump in. As you famously say, but I, I think that uh, you know a rib injury, three broken ribs, is a very serious thing, especially for somebody her age. Um, oh, completely. I, I suspect that she will um, she will have to find a way to recover. I mean, they're, they're, you know, strategic. Um, Insights are already emerging after after what what could have been a tragedy, truly. And I think that if she recovers for the better part of a year, um, the Democrats uh, and then decide she wants to step down because because the recovery is uh, is taxing, um, uh, then the Democrats I think will uh, will do their own version of Merrick Garland and say that there's no way in uh, an election uh, coming up to an election year that um, that they'll try anyone in the court uh, they, they, they can't I actually was reading a couple of a couple of pieces on the same thing and the theory you know is that she clearly wants it out and and it's amazing that what she's accomplished in just the last couple of years uh, on the bench that exists today and that that this actually could be a blessing in disguise in some respects you know I'm sure she's in a lot of pain and everything but but it's terrifying to think that um that Trump could get a potential third Supreme Court justice. Oh, I know. There. I mean, I, Roger Stone is probably at, at Walter Reed trying to, you know, uh, uh, unplug the generators. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's move on okay, to the yeah, blue yeah, wave. But let, let's dive right in. Okay. So was it a blue wave, John, or was it not a blue wave? <laughs> you know, what's funny like is a- um, 
I mean, right, it, it wasn't, you know, um, and, and it was at the same time, I suppose. It, um, it, it was a meaningful, meaningful, meaningful victory in the House, which is the, the body of the people, which, which sounds silly to say, but it's true that the, the House represents America more than any other body. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by three million votes, and he's president. Uh, you know, the, the electoral map really benefits the Republicans in the Senate. Um, you know, there's, it, it's absurd that, uh, that, like, Wyoming, you know, has as many senators as New York, but that's life. That's the Constitution. That's the country we live in. Um, uh, so it was certainly a, a, a significant victory for the Democrats, but I think that the every every, every you know um, I think person who followed the race closely knew that Beto was going to lose. Uh, the, the loss was more competitive than many expected, but but the Stacey Abrams contested loss, and uh, which we'll talk more about later, and the Gillum loss I think were um, were, were really heartbreaking for for Democrats and really um, cast a, a pall, a little a small pall, a, a mini pall over. An otherwise um, real, very significant night, and um, and you know they're going to put so the screws I, um, to this guy. I I spoke to a political operative who um, I said, you know, what does this all mean? This is someone who's worked on political campaigns um, and asked not to be named because they may work on future political campaigns. But uh, this guy told me that um, that it actually so the, the thing the problem was that we we all got caught up in these kind of Beto races that. We're never going to be one anyway, irrelevant of who was running, and it had nothing to do with Ted Cruz. It had to do with Republicans. Um, and But when you look at those things aside, that it actually, the results do show that there is a solid shift taking place in the center of the country away from Trump and Trumpism, and that if the Democrats can get their shit together, um, that they're, they're and they can find a true alternative to c- go up against Trump in 2020, that this is actually the signal that that there is there is a way through. And his prediction was that there will not just be a Democratic primary with 20 people on stage, that, but there'll be almost like sub primaries where you'll have kind of the old person primary, which will be the Biden, Bernie, Warren people. Right. Then you'll have the new blood liberal primary, which will be like. Garcia and folks like that. And then you'll have the moderate side primary, which is like Kamala, Kristen McAuliffe, Rom, Emmanuel, people like that. And then um, and then you'll have this kind of other primary, which will be the outsiders, Schultz, Bloomberg, someone we may not have heard of, and that that, that will then set up the stage for uh, for what's going to happen in 2020, which I think is an interesting approach. Maybe, you know, it's funny. I actually think that the uh, the Democratic primary is going to be a lot more like World War One. Um, in that there will be um, an alliance system that kind of break, uh, goes into effect before, um, you know, so you have all these kind of balkanized countries, and they get unified by various treaties, which are which are probably you know, self-interested and and in some cases diabolical. Um, so I wonder if it'll get as far as your source is, is predicting. I, I have a sense that um, various self-interested parties are now, like I think one thing that the, the election did sort out is. Um, of the 20 or so, 15 or so, dozen or so, whatever it is, Democrats who, who uh, have ambitions, serious ambitions of higher office, I think it has really sorted them into top-of-ticket contenders and bottom-of-ticket contenders. You know, um, mm-hmm. Beto yeah. was, was someone who people thought if he won, he could run for president. He didn't win, so maybe he'll be someone's veep. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, of course, the, the, the wrinkle to all this is, um, is Mike Bloomberg, who seems to hope against hope. That he will run, but I wanted to say one more thing, Nick. As you were talking, I, I was thinking that actually, um, if you asked me that question one more time, and I'll pretend that you did, I'd answer it this way: it, it, it was a, a a massively successful night for the Democrats, but in the Trump universe, 
optics matter so much. And not winning the Senate and not winning this, those two governor's races um, allows the optics to be muddled. You know, um, the, the, when Trump came to power in 2016, the Republicans owned all the state houses across America. Two years later, the Democrats have massively dented into that into that majority, um, which is very, very significant. But in America now, all politics are national. No one gives a flying fuck about what happens at the state level. I mean, honestly, it just it, it's not the story, um, even though it's incredibly important. And so the optics matter. And that's uh, and that's the hard thing to get past for Democrats. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I want to tell you a little story about Michael, a guy who is a computer programmer and got carpal tunnel syndrome and didn't know what to do. So he put his career on hold as a programmer and decided that he was going to take advantage of this opportunity to take reclaimed lumber and turn it into handcrafted furniture. And he started a thriving online company called Strong Oaks. When his bank wouldn't actually lend him $17,000 he needed for machinery, Michael turned to PayPal Working Capital for help. The lender for PayPal Working Capital is WebBank member FDIC. Michael was blown away at the application process. It was so fast and so simple. After receiving his loan, he grew his business, but then he ran into a setback. There was a fire at the business building, and the company had 15 employees who immediately lost their jobs. Faced with starting over, Michael turned to PayPal Working Capital again, applied for, and received another loan. That same year that he lost everything, Michael was able to rebuild his business back to previous levels. Of course, every business is different, and results may not be typical. So when you're ready to grow your business, PayPal can help you by providing fast access to funds. Just visit paypal.com slash growth to set up a business account today. You can sign up for free. Once again, it is paypal.com slash growth. It's fast. It's simple. You will not regret it. Okay. We only have a few minutes because we have a long podcast coming up, uh, but I had a question for you, which I have not been able to figure out. And I'm curious if you have in the Vanity Fair newsroom been able to discover or even get an inkling of a glimpse out of what Trump is doing by getting rid of Sessions the first day after the the loss of the House, when it means, doesn't this mean that it means once the House takes over and Schiff and those, those folks have the subpoena power they want, that they'll come after Trump in a way that they've never come after anyone before? Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of theories here, um, including what they can accomplish before the new uh, uh, House members, um, the new House majority take shape in, in late January. But certainly he hated Sessions uh, since Sessions recused himself. We, we know that um, uh, this the midterms provided a convenient point for uh, Trump and Sessions to uh, to part ways. In fact, I didn't know this until I heard Mike Schmidt say it on the Daily uh, yesterday morning. But um, but Trump held on to Sessions' resignation letter for weeks after he offered it. Um, his top aides told him not to accept it because it would be a terrible look for him. But he held on to the letter as a leverage just to, just to sort of mindfuck Sessions, uh, which is really a tantalizing idea if you want to get the measure of a man. Um, wh- what is Trump doing in the simplest of terms? He's trying to transfer uh, stewardship of the Mueller probe over to Whitaker, who's publicly stated that the Mueller probe can't veer into Trump's personal life or... Um, or his uh, his family or his business, which of course is exactly where it's veering. Um, Gabe Sherman's published a couple of stories this week that uh, suggest that uh, Don Jr. is uh, has told from that says excuse me that, that say that Don Jr. has told friends that he expects to be indicted um, as soon as uh, uh, this coming week. So I I think what you're seeing is um, 
uh, Trump is, is panicking, trying to kibosh this thing. And um, and at the very least, as he attempts to kibosh it, whether he can or not, throwing up massive smoke bombs to distract people from the fact that uh, um, his, his family is in jeopardy and, and the Democrats are going to try and find out not only what he paid every year of his adult life in income tax, but also whether he wittingly or unwittingly laundered money for, um, uh, for you know, um, uh, Terrible Russian Russians. oligarchs, or, or or worse, you know, uh, murderous yeah. uh, uh, members of the of the uh, the GRU. I uh, I've actually uh, one of my sources uh, who was actually interviewed by the special counsel um, said that their theory from the questions is that uh, Don Jr. is going to be indicted in the, in the next coming weeks too. So I, I, I mean, how can that, I'm not a lawyer, Nick, um, but um, but I've read enough John Grisham novels. I mean, like. <laughs> <laughs> the the the, um, the 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 vessel at Sky meeting. Everything we know about it, and everything we know about um, Trump's response, the hastily written note atop uh, upon Air Force One, all these things point, you know, suggestively to the fact that um, uh, that uh, Don Jr. was ferreting out information and passing it on uh, in in ways that were. It's nefarious well, and also probably ignorant. He probably assumed, "Oh yeah, this is you know, it's um." Well, I think uh, it's this it's is the, all fair game. It, you can probably do this. Like, oh, how cool! Like the Russian government's trying to totally help us out by by uh, nuking Hillary Clinton. But I th- I think that the um the thing that is sort of the the most uh, the most tragic in all of this is a- absent um uh, a massive smoking gun. I, I don't know how much this is going to matter to the the polity, so to speak. For us in our world, all we talk about is Mueller. It's all we talk about. It's all you and I talk about. But I think that you know the, the Russia probe uh, is like you know thirty one on um, uh, on you know the the, the cross tabs for the interests of uh, ordinary Americans. It just it just tuned out. Yeah, I, I I think you're completely right. I think as far as Don Jr. is concerned, he's he just like his dad grew up getting away with everything wrong he ever did and, and assumed oh well i'll get away with this and who knows maybe he will get away with it just you know maybe the trump brand of of nothing sticking actually is uh nepotistic I'll tell you, one down. thing i think about a lot is that after the financial crisis zero um uh wall street bankers went to jail there was only, yep. actually there, there yep. was one guy who um uh the the guy that jesse eisinger wrote his book about um who worked in like credit suites who who made a stupid mistake and, and uh, uh, but like you know a, a guy who shouldn't have gone to jail not like you know sort of people at the, at the Dick Fold level I'm not saying he should have gone but at the Dick Fold type level anyway flash forward ten years it will be amazing if Russia colludes in our election and um, only a few people like Paul Manafort and McGates go to jail like I, I I will be I will be shocked if um, if heads don't roll in some capacity the question is whether um, Someone like Don Jr. gets indicted and then uh, is able to to turn upwards. There are not many people that Don Jr. can rat out that they would care about. Um, so uh, this could get uh, this one. Yeah, Donald just one. Just one. I don't think they're. Trump. I don't think they want to talk to Don Jr. about Kimberly Guilfoyle. Um, yeah, exactly. So this this is going to get great. A real bottom. All right. Stripper. Well, let's move on to uh, the. Podcast I have a question for you, Nick. Actually, oh, I want to okay, know. Um, quick. You wrote a, a controversial piece this week about um, uh, about voting booths and um, and election technology. 
I assumed that you would come out on the side of trying to expedite voting. Voting stinks. In a lot of ways, it's boring. It takes a long time. It's like, you know, you're never quite sure it works. I was looking at the, my polling station. I did not trust any of these people that, that were allowing me to sign in. I could have probably signed in as any other person on the rolls. It seems like it is uh, uh, ripe for disruption. But you argued persuasively that this is one thing that the geniuses in Silicon Valley should sort of keep their hands away from. Yeah, so I wrote a piece actually in 2012 when I was at the New York Times where I said that um, uh, that the fact that you've, since 1972, 55% or so of Americans have voted and the other 45% or so have not is a perfect example of the fact that um, we need to rethink voting. And this was back in, you know, five years ago when I was a, a pro-tech person uh, and now have seen the spoils of what Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and folks like that have have put on the earth. And I and I completely have changed my tune. Like, I think that, you know, in that time frame, there's, if you just go look at the, the, the Wikipedia entries of lists of companies that have been hacked and it's almost like they should just save themselves the time and write lists of companies that have not been hacked yet. Um, because there are just so many massive companies and corporations and tech companies all over the planet who have some of the best engineers in the world uh, overseeing their software and security. And, you know, they're hacked every day, every week, every month. Um, look what happened with Facebook and Google this year alone. And I think that, you know, when you start to look at these experiments that have happened in other places around the world where people have done um, digital voting and internet voting, as they call it, uh, even those don't work. You know, in France, there was a, a system they put in place to, to test it out in 2014. And some reporters from Metro News figured out how to how to sign in with different names and, and vote, even though the names were made up. The, the only place that I believe it's actually worked, and we don't know if it's worked because we, we could just only cross our fingers, is, is Estonia. And the only reason it worked in Estonia was because everyone there has a government-issued ID card, and they were all the ID cards were tied to the digital voting system. And so there was only a certain number of votes that could even have been put in, and oh, there was systems in place. You know, a lot of people have been talking about in. And also, by the uh, way, Estonia has 1.3 million people. And also, by the way, yeah. like in Estonia, it's negative 20 degrees 11 months of the year. So <laughs> you want to be indoors on a voting line. Um, well, and finally, the, you know, people have been have been all the the pro Silicon Valley. You know, let's make it digital voting. Folks have been talking about in West Virginia. There was a, a pilot program that was performed this this election cycle in the primaries. Sorry, in the midterms where. Uh, there were 144 people from 26 different counties that were able to vote overseas and using a mobile app that employed, you know, blockchain technology and, and uh, uh, face ID and all these different things. And and just because it worked for 144 people in a county that no one cares about does not mean that uh, it should be adopted uh, nationwide. I think that, you know, I, I love my Kindle. I love my iPhone. I love my laptop. I, I, it's great that I can read a book on a beach and buy it, you know, uh, no matter where I am. But I don't, I, I think that we should keep voting as paper ballots. I think that, that you know, I would, I would take less people voting than Russia deciding who votes. So, yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the, I agree with you then. I think the most significant way to solve some of these problems has to do with the way registration works. And that, that's what we saw in Georgia. That the, te yeah. the technology was obviously um, uh, very flawed and, um, and maybe tragically flawed. I mean, I, I can't attest at all the imagery I saw of these large lines in what seemed like Abrams districts were um, 
only the result of uh, tech errors and also who knows if they, they were all Abrams supporters. But it seems like the way people get processed and registered and they execute their vote is is problematic. And if you can like hack that, then it's actually pretty um, pretty easy to uh, to check a box and, and hand it to somebody have accounted. On that note, we should actually get to the podcast, which is talking about how the elite are changing the world and not for the better. Um, so my guest this week is the author of a book called Winners Take All that just came out, how the elite charade of changing the world is not necessarily working out the way that everyone that's a billionaire thinks it should be. Uh, we talk a lot about what is going on wrong with the inequality that's taking place in this country today. We're going to talk a lot about, um, not just this country, but globally, about um, how philanthropy is actually a very flawed system that's designed to keep the rich richer and the poor poorer, even though it comes across as being something that is designed to help the poor, um, about how the coming automotive apocalypse is actually probably going to lead to some sort of climactic rioting infrastructural decaying system in America but you know we'll see bring so on the decay should we, take, should we take it away let's do it say hi to Anand all right I will welcome to inside the hive can you tell us why you're sitting here across from me right now I'm trying to figure that out myself <laughs> uh, this is Anand Gerdardas I'm excited to be here in your in your um, LA studio LA studio so you have a new book out it's called winners take all the elite charade of changing the world which is a um, a fascinating book I, I read it over the weekend and have a lot of questions and it seems so we had a big election this week right and we're not going to talk about the election why because I think in many ways the extraordinary shit show of our electoral politics um, is has in some ways distracted us from deeper structural problems in the nature of this society that have allowed Donald Trump to be president and have allowed um, barbarism to creep into this country's into this country's political life. Um, and so, uh, I think now that the election's behind us, the, the the work of rebuilding this country at a deeper level. Uh, I'm not not saying that the political stuff is not important. It's profoundly important, and this book, in some ways, is a call for more of us to spend more time on politics. But I think I mean politics in an expansive sense of um, of really rebuilding our capacities of self-government in this country. So one of the things reading the book and you know looking at some of the talks you've done online and, and things like that, it seems that the book is about um, it's this winners take all philosophy. It's about you know philanthropy that doesn't work and so on. But really, at the heart of it, it's about inequality. And the thing that I always, I often wonder is, I mean, when you look at inequality around the world today, the U.S. It, you know, I have statistics on my computer. I was just looking up before um, the the U.S. The graphs are off the chart. You know, there are just. Tens of millions. I mean, one of the things I just saw today, which I had no idea, is that there are um, eight, 59,000 people in the United States that are worth over $50 million. There's no country on earth that even comes close to that. China, of course, is, is getting there. But how is it that we even got here? Was it, you know, there were people that say it was the corporation's fault. There were people that say it's the politician's fault. There were people that say that it was the rich people's fault. But was this an intended consequence or an unintended consequence? It's a great question. I mean, let, let's, let me start with a what may be a provocation to some of your listeners or not, which is that I actually think 
the number of billionaires we have in this country and the, and the number of billions that each of them has is not a measure of our success as a society, but a measure of our failure. Oh, completely, without question. And that runs so counter to American culture. I mean, even the media, even the media that often is very skeptical of power, does billionaire lists and kind of profiles of, of these people. And we, we think about it as a measure of health, and, and I think it's a measure of sickness for the following reason. Over the last 30 or 40 years, um, the moneyed interests in American life, business interests, wealthy individuals, um, and others, waged a concerted political campaign uh, to wrest control of political power. Um, this grew out of something in the 70s called the Powell Memo and other, you know, other um, movements where you had basically business people afraid that the tide was turning against them, that communism was this strong force, that Americans were gravitating to the left. I mean, it was a, it was a time when you know, the Soviet Union had not ended yet, and you, and you could wonder which way maybe things were going to go. And Lewis Powell, before getting on the Supreme Court, was a lawyer for kind of Chamber of Commerce interests and wrote this memo saying, we can't just be business over here, like buying for a dollar, selling for two. We have to make our case. We have to have ourselves represented in government. And, and you really had from there a remarkably successful takeover of government. You had an alliance with evangelicals and, and, and others so that the, the modern right became this kind of business party married to other enablers. And you had, let's just in, describe it in, in, in tactical terms rather than substantive terms, a, a remarkably effective um, campaign by the rich and powerful to convince average Americans, many average Americans, that things that are basically only good for very few people are good for many, many people, like not having an estate tax you know, on, on huge estates, things that affect very, very tiny few numbers people. of people. And, and if you did them, would benefit way... Uh, but how is it... Most people, I don't, think that, I don't think that most people are stupid. I think that you, know, you meet people from all across the country, whether they are educated... Uh, elite colleges or community colleges or high school, and they they understand these simple things. But how is it that they fell for it? Um, really good politics, really really good politics. I, th I think people who are um, more on my side of things, more on the left, more more of a of a skeptical bent on markets. Frankly, in my view, have been just less good at politics. <laughs> there have been some exceptions. I think Barack Obama is really good at politics. But the way in which to take one example. They took an estate tax, which affects so few people and would benefit so many, and turned it into the death tax. That is being really good at politics. Yeah, the it's it's the, evil. The Republicans are very good at, at it's very at, uh, good politics. At, the way they the way they have rebranded the people who are laying you off as job creators is excellent, excellent world class politics. I don't like where it goes, but it's excellent politics. The way they have created a sense like you got to balance your government budget the way you balance your family budget. Well, that's actually not true. There was a whole guy named Keynes who proved the opposite of yeah. that. Mm -hmm. But again, they're good at politics. politics. And so they were able to take essentially a set of policies that are useful for the 1%. And, and cast them as, give them a kind of populist glow for years. And so Donald Trump was not the first populist. He rode in on a train of the moneyed, using populist tropes for a long time to essentially launder, um, you know, high-end legal theft 
as an ideology that had salience in many million of American lives. So if you look at over the years, um, what the poor has made, and you write about this in your book, uh, has pretty much not changed. It's like a couple hundred dollars difference when you factor in inflation and so on um, over the past hundred years. We we have a society where the top 1% in America makes $6.7 million or more, and the bottom 90% makes below 34000 A lot of people make around 16000 or so. Um, do, you, do you think that the way this is solved because I don't have actually much faith in the fact that people are going to turn around and vote differently because uh, they vote on social issues now, which is another thing the Republicans did really well to make it about social issues and not economic issues. But you know, when you look through all these different times in history, there's eventually an uprising and someone gets their head chopped off uh, from the elite side of things. Do you think that that's how this is going to get solved here? I mean, think about the following. I mean, you you have been such a leader in writing about the innovation of the last however many years, right? It's actually amazing to think about all that. I mean, innovation just means it's like a Latin word for new shit. Right? <laughs> think of all the new shit that you have covered, just you yeah, in your, right? Um, I don't think you can make a case that there's been a lack of new stuff in this country no. over the last 30 or 40 years. This has been maybe the most fertile period for new stuff There's a statistic from uh, MIT where they said that... Um, that in the last, uh, the, the amount of, of new things and innovation that has happened from the last 30 years to the next 100 is equal to the last 20,000 years yes. combined. Okay, and it's, it's the internet, it's your computer, it's genomics, yeah. it's like medical device stuff that you don't even know about, but that's hugely changed things. It's, it's um, podcasting. Podcasting, obviously. <laughs> um, USB ports. Um, and all of that, so that's innovation over here. The question is, why has that failed to translate into progress if progress is defined as most people's lives getting better? And I think part of the problem is we have a culture that's so focused on innovation, which literally just means there being new things, that we've forgotten that innovation actually is pretty meaningless if it doesn't, in a systematic way, continue to translate into most people's lives getting better. And so I actually start the book with some examples of like in, in food in America, there's been like a lot of new shit, but like Americans are no healthier as a result of that on average. There's been like amazing stuff in terms of how we read all the places you can read from, but like literacy is no better. Um, we've had amazing kind of biomedical stuff. The best in the world is happening right here in this country, but we're not any healthier and life expectancy went down. So what happens has happened in my view is the machine that is supposed to turn innovation into progress is broken. So when you ask about, is there going to be a revolt? I think that sets up a condition of yes. I don't know whether it's tomorrow or 10 years from now. I think you could also make a case we're living in the middle of it. This is what a revolt looks like. It's the early not, years it's of a fascist kind of politics. Um, the, the most dangerous and unqualified president in American history. I mean, maybe this is the revolt. Um, the but, revolt may but take the weird forms. But the revolt is not leading to change for the poor. And it's no. not leading to better education. And it's not leading to... No. And in it, fact, and it's it, doing worse. Right. There are good revolts and there are bad revolts. And I think we're living in a bad one right now. But I think we're living in one that is, you know, a warning to the elites in this country that if you are not faithful stewards of the country... If you continue to just make new shit in a way that doesn't make people's lives better in a systematic way, 
you, one thing you risk is, you know, having your head chopped off, as you said. Another thing you risk is super liberal, you know, backlash policies, Bernie Sanders becoming president. But a third thing you risk, which we're living through now, is just chaos and instability and a demagogue like Donald Trump being in charge of the most, you know, powerful country in the history of the world. Do you think when you look at, um, you know, one of the things you talk about a lot about in the book is um, is education um, and uh, and the the you know you that that we are in an era where the problem one of the big problems in the United States is that you know you have philanthropy where people are like oh let me build a magnet school or something like that to try to you know help help do their thing to do their part for education yet when you kind of look at the amount of money America spends. Uh, percentage-wise in the GDP uh, on education, it's it's pretty close to Bolivia. Um, it's I mean it's it's unbelievable how little the the government cares about that as the future of our democracy. What is it that you think that the people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, the ones with hundreds of billions of dollars that that do these small little contributions to education, what is it that you would rather that they do to make just to help the next generation. I mean, education is so interesting because you're right. I mean, this is the issue that perhaps most appeals to and attracts these plutocrat givers. And it's also the issue that most illustrates the failure of the model of having rich people rape and pillage an economy and then give back a little bit. Um, The problem with education, as your question suggested, is a systemic problem. It's a problem of there being not enough resources, there being not enough taxes. There's also issues with, you know, how we regulate it, how we do testing, teachers' unions as a whole. It's a complicated set of issues. But there's a resource issue at the heart of this, and there's a a vile cruelty at the heart of how we fund education, which is that we basically allow local communities to hoard their own property taxes for their own little school. And so you have nice neighborhoods in this country that have great public schools and most neighborhoods that that don't. Um, And that, I mean, it's just cruel. It's, in my view, unconstitutional, although the Supreme Court upheld it in the early 70s. I think that's a a case that we should be trying to get a reversal of over a period of years. Um, And so when when Bezos gets involved in creating a billion dollars for a network of Montessori schools in Seattle or you know, Mark Zuckerberg has this one, you know, primary school thing that his wife is is very involved with. Um, what none of them are touching is that deep systemic stuff. And at the heart of the argument of winners take all is that when rich people take over the leadership of social change, what we should expect and what we indeed do get is social change that changes nothing fundamental. So it's great for Mark Zuckerberg to create this one little primary school um, with his wife. But let's look at Mark Zuckerberg more broadly. (coughs) Excuse me. Mark Zuckerberg, (coughs) in his pursuit of growth at any cost, in his fantasy of the total community... Of him being the emperor that that wins it all. I mean... You know, people who work with him tell me it's not even about money and no. it's it's about users. Like he wants all the users all the time. Someone told me that he is um, that he 
looks at who works with him too said that he looks at mark zuckerberg wakes up in the morning he, they said if you or i woke up in the morning and we were ceo of facebook we would be like holy fucking shit there's 2.3 billion people that use this thing that i that i built and mark zuckerberg wakes up and says holy fucking shit why are, what's with the other four and a half billion people why aren't they using this thing like this is someone who's right in my personal opinion, it's kind of a little bit of a sociopath in that he, in that there's nothing that is going to solve the problem of not enough people being on Facebook. But go on, what you were saying with the... So, so, so you have a guy in Mark Zuckerberg, because I think the specific cases are very illustrative, who is building a school, but looking at more fully at him, he's, he's pursuing user growth at any cost at Facebook. He has now done that in a way where he has done something that actually no American company has ever done in history, which is compromise a federal election and perhaps even allow it to have been tipped. Um, two years later, he's still at it because he's so greedy oh, yeah. for user growth. By the way, like they could literally just shut down the ad program for six months until they sort it out. That is a totally doable thing. We no had, one needs Facebook. We had uh, I just interviewed Steve Gall- um, Galloway, the uh, uh, Scott Galloway, sorry, um, actually just last week, not for the podcast, for a story I was doing, and he said, you know, that it boggles his mind that if if Facebook really cared, if Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg really gave a shit about the about society about america they would say you know what we're going to shut this thing down and we're until we can figure this out we have twelve thousand people to work here we could probably build some things that will solve a lot of these problems in a couple of weeks but they won't because they don't care but here's the question so why is he doing the why is he even giving a one percent of one percent of one percent of his money towards education is it just a pr ploy well it's more complicated than that so so in my view, you have a guy who is, in his reckless pursuit of growth, is damaging this republic in a way that, you know, in the Mueller indictments, like Facebook was a crucial part of the Russian intelligence campaign against this country. Yep. Because Mark is unwilling to either shut it down or hire a million people to approve of things or whatever he could do that would slow him down, he's putting, frankly, this future survival of this republic as a republic with rights and liberties uh, at risk. And then, with some of the spoils of that, he's creating this little school. And part of what I want to live in and I'm arguing for in this book is like, we don't need your damn school, man. <laughs> we don't need your little immigration initiative either, man. Yeah. We don't need you to eradicate all the diseases. Another promise. We didn't need you to save the schools of Newark, which you didn't do because... Just like with Christopher Columbus and the Americas, he hadn't visited Newark until he decided to save it. Um, And what we need you to do is just not dump harm into our society in the pursuit of your own success. So the, the education initiative, is it a PR ploy? Sure. Is it also a sincere effort by someone who just thinks he's really good at stuff to like be good at another thing? Yeah. All these philanthropic capital, I mean, never get into a car with a philanthropic capitalist because they don't know how to stay in their lane. If they're, if they're successful at one thing... They think they can solve everything. Well, well here's education over here. Let's, let's just swerve six lanes across the 405 into education and we'll just, we'll just make the schools better. We'll just get rid of... I mean, I, I, I actually don't mean the comparison to Columbus lightly. I mean, the, 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 yeah. the, the, the murder is, is, is different. But the, the fantasy that you can kind of walk into spaces and imagine there to be nothing there um, is at the heart of the kind of colonial 
visions of a lot of people in Silicon Valley. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Did you know that the average man will shave at least 10,000 times in his lifetime? Isn't that crazy? 10,000? And yet we do so with subpar razors. Well, that's about to change. One Blade offers a closer, more refined shave while still delivering zero nicks, cuts, razor burns, or ingrown hairs. They have this weight of the stainless steel handle that helps progress your shave, giving you silky, soft skin. I've been using it, and I can assure you my skin, if you could see it right now, is silky and soft. One Blade is obsessed over things like the reference surfaces, pivot points, spring force of a razor, all of which is shave terminology to ensure that you get the absolute best shave possible. One Blade has invested over a million dollars, 12,480 man hours, 730 days of research, and iterating over a thousand different prototypes to make the One Blade razor, which is pretty insane when you think about all of that time. If you're ready to elevate your shave experience, try One Blade today. Listeners of Inside the Hive are going to get a special. If you go to onebladeshave.com and enter the discount code HIVE, you know how to spell it, H-I-V-E, you will get $20 off their your entire purchase. It is a no-hassle 60-day trial, lifetime guarantee. This razor will be the last razor you ever buy. Each One Blade Genesis razor is individually numbered and guaranteed for life. It's earned a warranty forever. It'll be something that you'll pass down through each generation. And it actually makes a great gift if you're not buying it for yourself. Once again, go to OneBladeShave.com and enter the discount code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, and you get $20 off your entire purchase. OneBladeShave.com, HIVE. So when you look at the lists, you know, you mentioned those lists of like billionaires um, uh, that, the, that we see in every magazine and they're infuriating because they're the same people and they're all mostly, I think they're all men actually, the top 10 billionaires in, in the world. And and uh, 60% of them are people who have made money, white men who have made money uh, from tech. Um, and what's so fascinating, I've been covering this, the tech world for 20 years now, 15, 20 years, and and what's been so fascinating just the past two years alone is how quickly that spike of, of how much money they have made and their companies have gone to a trillion dollars and so on has happened. And my belief is that it is happening quicker and quicker um, because they have so much data. And with that data, they can use their algorithms to make us click on more ads and get more people to buy ads and so on and so forth. And I mean, just look at the statistic. Two years ago, Oxfam put out a report that said that the, the richest six people on the planet have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion. This year, they put out the report, it's the richest three people on the planet that have the same amount of wealth. In just a year, it changed to it cut in half. Um, and, and the question I have is, is, is there a solution that what even regulation, vo- voting, cutting off someone's head, whatever it is, is there a solution that can stop these tech giants from only getting bigger and richer and more powerful? Yes, yes, what? many. What? <clears throat> I mean, first of all, <clears throat> the answer to a winners-take-all society is a society in which winners take less. Okay, and there's a couple of ways to achieve that. Okay. One is regulation on the way to making their money, and the other is taxation after they've made their money. Both are remarkably effective. But yet, both require. Europe does a better job dealing with our tech companies on both of those fronts Absolutely. than we do. And it's not like some crazy rocket science. And it's in <laughs> part because in Europe, no one believes Mark Zuckerberg is changing the world in Europe. They think he's a guy with a company. They don't hate him. They just, he's a guy with a company. And they don't give him special treatment. Our culture in this country gives these people like this 
this kind of VIP access pass to do whatever they want with us because we think they are different and tech is different. I think it's such a good point. This, I mean, those Oxfam numbers every year are just so profoundly depressing mm-hmm. because they, they immediately deflate what has been the central fantasy peddled by big tech all these years that you've been covering it, which is that what they own and what they do is inherently leveling. They have made the case from the beginning that tech is inherently democratizing, that these tools will get rid of gatekeepers, allow regular people to... And there's a certain truth in those stories. I mean, it is certainly true that Twitter has allowed more people to say what they think than Not, not necessarily before. a good thing, but yes, it's Correct. true. So, so there's a, it's, not a, it's not a complete made-up story that these tools are empowering. If you're a singer in Algeria and living in your parents' basement, YouTube creates an opportunity to be discovered that you know, probably didn't exist before. Um, so there's a truth there. However, we can't escape the reality now many years into that tech revolution that basically it has doubled down on existing power equations. Right? It has not changed the composition of like racially and gender-wise of wealth. In fact, it's probably made it a little worse. Um, it has doubled down wealth and power concentration in this country. And so these tools are not tools of, of liberation. No tools are tools of liberation. I mean, the same thing that may empower you and me, the same tools that allowed, allowed Black Lives Matter to do what it did, allow the Chinese government to keep a very close watch on what people are saying. It's the same tools. And so in terms of the question of what can you do to break up those numbers, I mean, Silicon Valley has a massive tax avoidance problem that people don't talk about yep. enough. Mm-hmm. The double Dutch with an Irish sandwich is just this, you but know, the very... Tax, com- the tax avoidance problem is, is it's a small percentage of what these companies are able to reap. It's not, it's not, I mean... Chain, I mean, the, the, Apple, the, Apple has $285 billion offshore. Sitting, yeah. That doesn't cash. have to be legal. That's because of maneuvers that they use that don't have to be legal. I mean, we need to actually think bigger here. Like, this is about... Okay, so going back to the beginning of our conversation, you were saying that, um, that, that we have voted people into power, into office, politicians, uh, that have in turn made it worse for the poor, uh, eradicated the middle class, of course, and yet those are the ones that could actually solve the problem, but yet we keep voting those wrong people in. So is it is it going to the to the bottom of the barrel and saying, "Hey, you're you're doing the wrong thing here"? And how do you if it if that is the solution, so that we do actually get some legislation put forward that that does regulate these billion these multi multi billionaires and and these companies? Um, it, but how do you convince those people that it it is that they are voting against themselves uh, in economic issues because they care more about these social issues? I don't think it's necessarily convincing those people first as the goal. I think the goal is, has to be to create deep and cross-cutting movements in this country that are animated by reform as the central thesis of what needs to happen. I really think the last 30, 40 years has been defined by the fantasy of the market above all. And so that even pretty liberal people, basically when, you, when, when they saw a problem, tended to think about a kind of market-ish Yeah, solution. like the rise of neoliberalism. It's so we've been, all been, we're the fish in the neoliberal water. And I think what comes next, and, and a lot of the difficulty of this moment to me is about the kind of 
static at the end of an era. I think the next era has to be an age of reform, much as we had 100 years ago, where we stopped kind of relying on robber barons and philanthropists to solve things and actually built an FDA and like regulated the workday and got rid of child labor and actually electrified rural America and built highways and built a social insurance system and all that stuff. Things that you can't do alone, things that private individuals and heroes can't do, but that you do together. I think we just frankly need another wave of that. I think we're at another version of that pivot from private greatness to public greatness. And the way you do that is you build movements that are in favor of that. And I think one of the things that's so interesting, particularly you know, given your experience covering tech and specifically Twitter, is I think things like Twitter give people a fake sense of participating. Oh, completely. People who tweet about issues it's it, and think that they've actually done something, it's literally equivalent of like putting a bumper sticker on your car. Just because you put a bumper sticker on your car that says like coexist or, you know, that you don't believe in the Second Amendment doesn't mean someone's not going to get shot in a school today. It's it's just total ludicrousy that people believe that that is changing anything. If I was a billionaire who didn't want to be taxed higher, what I would want are some platforms where people vent a lot and, and do feel nothing. like they have acted as citizens. That's a good point. Um, and that's what we have. And, you know, I often joke, like, if you haven't barbecued with someone, you're not in a movement with them. If you look at the civil <laughs> rights movement, those people knew each other. Yeah. They knew each other for long periods of time. They knew each other's kids' names and parents' names. They knew each other's ailments. They knew, you know, when, when one went to jail, there was other people there who would be willing to drive across the state and get them out. Um, I don't think there are certainly amazing movements today that are rising, particularly in the wake of the Trump era. But I don't think in in a mainstream way that tendency of the age has spread as it needs to. And I think you need people who are getting offline and actually building deep movements. And you know, I think when you saw the teacher strikes in West Virginia and elsewhere, that was different. That started online. And then moved off. But it used online to get offline. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea of like going online to get offline, which I think, I don't know, Meetup was like used that slogan or others. But that idea of going online to get offline, I think is very, very important for the movement building of the future. And do you think that when you kind of look at the future as we move into the era of automation, um, is it going to take more people losing their jobs before they start to realize that while they may be voting for you know, because they don't believe in abortion or they believe in, in the Second Amendment or whatever, that they are doing so in spite of their entire livelihood? I mean, I, what's so crazy is we're basically pushing down a road where we haven't, like, we, ha- we ain't seen nothing yet yep. when it comes to the death of the American dream. Oh, I completely right? agree. And you know this as someone completely covering tech, agree. but the average American doesn't necessarily even know what's coming at them. And what's coming at them is something unlike what we've seen. I mean, frankly, the, the problems that, uh, of, of automation and globalization so far are paltry com- compared yeah. to what you know, Google machine learning portends for the world, for example. So the question becomes, how do we actually have deep, meaningful conversations, civic dialogue in this country around the future that is coming? And, and so there's a conversation about the future of work. There's a conversation about, frankly, the American dream. I mean, the American self-image on the right and left is 
deeply tied up in the idea that here more than anywhere, effort determines where you end up. Well, that's actually least true in this country among the 19 or 20 richest countries in the world. Mm. Um, there's a simple way to measure that, which is you take you know, 30 or 40-something-year-olds income and you look at their parents' income and you figure out how well do they correlate. What you want is no correlation, right? You want it to be random. Well, in some countries like Norway and Sweden, it is somewhat random. Um, here, it's basically a like totally faithful correlation, which basically means the American dream is not American, doesn't exist in America um, anymore. So we need to have a conversation about that. We need to have a conversation about health. You know those political ads they always show where you see like, a, a woman sitting at a kitchen table or a family sitting at a kitchen table and they're holding paper and they're like looking at their healthcare bills. Yep. Do you realize there's many countries in the world where people just don't do that? They just don't <laughs> sit there looking at their medical bills. You know what they do? <laughs> they like love their children. They, they, you know, start companies with that spare time. They like follow a dream to go back to school. Like they literally just don't sit at wooden tables, like reading their healthcare bills and wondering how they're going to stay alive. So, we have worked ourselves into a corner in this country where we have a lot of unnecessary pain because we have decided to be so solicitous of billionaires and decided that our country's well-being is tied up with the billionaire's well-being. And the billionaires have pulled this off in a way that is remarkable. You know, I will tell you as someone, I mean, we're sitting here in LA, like I live in New York. You go out to the Hamptons, you see that money. Like, they, they can try to obfuscate and be like, well, the economy is complicated. No. They just have these like $50 million houses in the Hamptons, and that money is literally money they could have paid in taxes or wages and didn't. Yep. So, you know, at some level, if Americans just prefer to struggle and suffer while people have great houses in the Hamptons, I guess that's fine. Um, but I think people need to wake up and realize that, frankly, um, the country we live in is not the country we think we live in. And it's going to be a very dark ride, and there's going to be a lot more Donald Trump-like figures in our, in, our, in our future. And the next time, you may get a Donald Trump who can read. Which would be terrifying on many levels. You just mentioned Norway, and I often look at that country as a, you know, they, are, they appear to be doing it right. Uh, a lot of Scandinavian countries, uh, Norway, um, there are a lot more happy people than there are here. Um, and one of the things to bring this back to the education thing is uh, Norway spends around 9% um, of the GDP on uh, education. Is that the key to all of this? Is, is education or... one issue. Yeah. For, first of all, you can't pick one issue, right? But if you had to pick one issue that would have the most impact on the other things, yeah. it would have to be that one in my view for the following reason. One... It is the education is the reset button between all the injustice, discrimination, all the problems of you know an older generation and then their kids, right? If you wanna if you wanna make sure that yeah okay you treated black people in this generation badly but you wanna break that and not have that transmitted and passed on well education is the way you break that. Um, if you you know so 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 I think from us just restoring social mobility in the American dream, it's important. But think about an issue like climate change, mm -hmm. right? Which in some ways, someone listening to this conversation on Mars 100 years from now, um, 
may think like, wow, it was really strange they were not talking about climate change the whole time, given, <laughs> given how the earth ended up ending. Yeah. Uh, like 14 years after their conversation. Um, <laughs> right? So I laugh, but it's true. You know, there were climate change, there were... we don't think about it as an education issue, yeah. but it's totally an education issue. Right? Like, basically, if 10% more people in this country took that threat seriously and and some of the people who already take it seriously took it more seriously and if more people just understood science the politics of that issue would be completely different right donald trump by the way you know if if you if we had like 10% more americans with a college degree we wouldn't be living in the trump era so part of this is education is a way of having a better politics it's a way of having a better economy and it's something that i think actually fulfills the deep values of both the left and the right. It fulfills the egalitarian values of the left. Everybody's entitled to a good education. But it fulfills the kind of, like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps narrative of the right, which is predicated on the idea that people get boots. <laughs> and the boots are the education system. It undermines the right so profoundly to give people an unequal starting point. Their whole case, if I'm going to take it seriously at face value, rests on the idea, okay, we give you a fair start, now you do, you do what you do in life. Well, you know, so I, I think when we think about people like Jonathan Haidt and others who think about how do we have cross-cutting conversations in this country, I think there's an opportunity for a movement around better education for everybody that has that potential to be a 65% issue, not a 50-50 issue. So do you think, you know, when you kind of look at education, you look at climate change, you look at automation, all these things, is that, which is the, the, the inequality, is that the most important? To me, all the things you just listed are, equally are important. all about the hegemony of money. Got it. They're all the hegemony of money. Yeah. Right? A lot of countries have money in them, maybe all of them. They don't all make money the hegemon. If you look at what makes us different, we imagine in this country that no one in Europe has capitalism. Norway's got capitalism. Germany's got capitalism. France's got capitalism. Britain's got capitalism. We're not special. Like, it's just business. People buying for a dollar and selling for two, it, it exists everywhere, actually. What is different in this country is that we allow money to rule us and rule our institutions and become our language, become our values. How has that happened? Is there a, is there a cultural history to it? There, I mean, there's a lot of arguments about that. There was a book that I remember I read a long time ago in high school, I think, about um, the question of why socialism had never ever taken as deeply mm -hmm. in this country as in Europe. And one of the arguments made that's very interesting is that the you know if you look at at European history, there were always two enemies of freedom. One was the king, representing kind of central governmental authority, oppressing you. And the other was feudal lords and ladies, which were not, which is not centralized authorities, basically rich people. It's mm -hmm. the 1%. Yep. And in Europe, there's this long history going back hundreds of years of sometimes it's the feudal lords screwing the people and the king is the protector from the feudal lords. And sometimes in history, it's the king who's screwing you and the feudal lords are the, you know, as in the case of like the parliaments um, that arose. And, the point that this book made was in this country, we don't have a feudal history of the same kind. We, have, we had slavery, but we didn't have this long hundred-year-old history. So our fixation was always the king, right? And, and 
I've been reading Jill Lepore's amazing history of this country, These Truths, which is an amazing book. And she, again, she, one of her arguments in the book is that America was founded in a, in a, in a kind of calculated overreaction. If you actually looked at what King George was doing, like, it was not that bad. It was not the stamp tax, the tea thing. I mean, like, the tea thing was kind of, they were already doing it, they just formalized it. Like, w America was founded by people who were really prickly about being ruled by a king. And I, I give that history to say, I think that is still with us 300 years later, where basically, in this country, we are hyper-aware of oppression when it comes in the form of an abusive governmental overreach, aka King George. We're still afraid and vigilant about King George. And we are totally blind to threats to freedom that come from feudal lords, aka the 1%. And therefore, we don't understand that, yes, sometimes the government is the thing that screws you, but sometimes like Goldman Sachs speculating ends up contributing to like millions of people losing their home. And we just don't have the same vigilance about being screwed privately. Hmm. Um, no, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I've come to realize covering all these companies, whether they're tech companies or, you know, finance institutions or whatever it is, is that they take on the DNA of their founding. Uh, Twitter is a perfect example. It was a company that was started amid total chaos uh, spawned out of the ashes of a podcasting company that failed. And there were four friends that stabbed each other in the face, neck, and back to take control. And and the company today, while it is stable within, uh, it is the product is exactly what it, it was founded with, um, mm. with fighting and bickering and, and people. You mean you think the abuse and stuff on the platform is a, Oh, without question. Outgrowth without question. Faster. Because I think that um, if you look at what was going on during the time that it was that these people were fighting for control of their of that company, was that the users were left to to figure it out. And and you may not think that a a, a little box on a web page where you can type in 140 characters is um, leaves a lot for the user to define. But look what they did. They they did at replies and hashtags and and threads and you name it and um and i think that they that it was in direct it was almost like the parents left the kids to ho stay home and party and there was some some not nice things that the kids did that they got away with and everyone was like wait i want to do those not nice things and it just kind of went from there and it was a it was a direct result of that and i think facebook's another example you know mark zuckerberg is a ruthless ceo who has no qualms at destroying a competitor, uh, even f people that were super close friends with him who have, who have built companies that were kind of maybe a little bit competitive to him and he just shut them off, um, shut off their Facebook feed and so on. Uh, and I think that uh, that is the DNA of Facebook. It's, it's why people still show up to work every day thinking, oh, we're changing the world. And really they're not. Uh, they're destroying it. And I think that... Uh, so it's interesting to hear you talk about the... Um, uh, the fact that that is still part of the DNA of America because it makes total sense. Uh, it, this will be the DNA of Facebook if it's still around in 50 years. Um, and it's the same thing. I think we are so, when I hear that, I mean, I, I just think like we're so um, gullible when it comes to our current robber barons. 
Oh, completely. And we don't even understand them as robber barons. You know, the reality is Mark Zuckerberg, robber baron. Right? The Google yep. guys, robber barons. Jack Dorsey, robber baron. Correct. All the way down the line. Um, and again, you know, many of your listeners may disagree with me, but I think if you've made like $100 billion in this era, you have made it only because we were not doing something right. We were not taxing you properly. We, you, you, you got lucky that labor unions were in a particularly weak place and you had immense leverage. That kind of money is evidence of a social crime. Not a legal crime, so, but a social crime in So many this ways. was my next question for you is, is do you think that what, well, first of all, do you think that we should be taxing people who make... I mean, I personally think if you make a billion dollars, you should get 90% taxed after Correct. that. Correct. Um, do you think that anything like that is ever going to happen? I mean, my wife always talks about how Warren Buffett once said that um, he pays less percentage in tax than his secretary does. Yep. <clears throat> but yet, once again, we're voting in these people who are aligned politically with these financial institutions and these multi-billionaires and millionaires, is there ever going to be a world where that yes. changes? Look, How? I mean, as, as bleak as this moment is, think about the following. In this country, gay people basically lived under total legal persecution 10 years ago? Yeah. That's over. And basically, there were, even the Republicans have basically let go of that issue. But was there, was there anything financial? Because fine, if it was once right. again... No, I, I agree. To, yeah. I, I agree that money is a little different. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, things do change, right? Everybody was fine with smoking 30 years ago, and now it's sort of a pariah activity that you have to, like, sneak away and do. You know, um, a lot of women were not really allowed to stray very far from their kitchens 30, 40 years ago. Um, and we're certainly not all the way where we need to be, but there's just been a remarkable cultural, social, legal change in the status and power and agency of women. So things change all the time in this society. This was a, when I was growing up, being a brown person in this country, this was a country where the default setting was white. That is hugely changed. Mm -hmm. And we're living in the Trump era because of a backlash against what has been tremendous change on that score. So I would not be hopeless about the fact this is going to change. I wrote this book because I think what is upholding a culture of billionaire hegemony in American life is a set of phony beliefs that don't actually have a lot of power to them if you actually think through them, but have a tremendous amount of power if you just sort of keep imbibing them like secondhand smoke in the culture. And so I wanted to have people think through what does it really mean when Mark Zuckerberg says he wants to fix education? And what does it really mean when these people say they want to do win-wins? Does it really mean they want to help people? Or does it mean that they feel like they need to win from helping others? What does it mean when these people um, tell us that they're changing the world? Are, are, are they really saying that they actually just want to make sure that their world doesn't change? Um, what is it, you know, when, when finance people in New York get together to Robin Hood Gala. Are they, are they really helping the poor or are they just using a little bit of making a difference to continue making the killing that they keep making over and over again? And I, th I actually have hope that if we can see through some of those myths and, and, you know, like you, I'm a reporter, I'm a reporter with opinions, but my opinions grow out of reporting. And I spend a lot of time with these people to try to understand their myths, how they think, how they see the world. 
And the conclusion I was led to is their rule of us is upheld by a bunch of sweet-smelling bullshit that lends itself, that, that, that collapses under you know, a little bit of scrutiny. And so I actually have hope that we will be able to convince people to pursue a different politics in this country. I think the Trump presidency has galvanized so many people to run for office, to take back citizenship, to vote, to participate. I get messages from young people all the time saying, I'm 22, I was about to take a job at a bank, but I'm now thinking of doing XYZ public spirited thing. I think we're going to see a migration back to public service of the kind that John F. Kennedy called for decades ago. Um, I think we're at a turning point in this country where we realize, frankly, the limits of making the world better through making money as the vessel. Mm. Um, and I think we're, it's not here yet, but we are on the verge of another age in which we actually go back to our heritage of making the world better through shared democratic activity. So if that is the case, and I hope it is, uh, and it's very optimistic, uh, um, is how does the individual, because one thing that is different from JFK 100 years ago, whatever you have, whatever time period you want to point to, um, is that corporations are now so insanely powerful, um, whether it's lobbying, whether it's the rights that corporations have, the amount of money they make, corporate uh, taxes, you, you name it. Um, can the individual who wants to make a difference stand up to the corporation that is designed to stop them? No, but a lot of individuals can. Got it. So to- I was at an event the other day where a young person, with, I was on a panel in Brooklyn, and a young person asked a different version of that question. It was like, well, what can I do? What's one thing I can do? Yeah. And someone on, sitting on the panel with me said, that's the wrong question. The question is, what can we do? So yeah, you as an individual are not powerful against the Koch brothers, okay? But you... In, a, in an actual organization that actually meets up locally and actually knows each other and actually fights on issues with 10 million members, you may well be more powerful than the Koch brothers. Um, look at the Me Too movement, right? There's a lot of powerful men and a tremendous amount of money that would like that movement not to be happening mm-hmm. right now. They're not more powerful than those women. Those women don't have... You know, um, they're not those, on the top ten those, billionaires list. Correct, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, they have millions of people. They have a movement. They have the ability to hack the conversation of this country. They have their stories, and they've organized and they've built organizations and institutions. Um, and I think it's not. We shouldn't be so fatalistic. Like there can easily be movements around the future of work and the future of worker power, and movements around ending the you know, funding of public schools according to mommy or daddy's home price, um, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are very, you know, Black Lives Matter came from um, a tradition of organizing layered onto it a new technological set of tools and very quickly changed the conversation in this country on those set of issues and, and, and helped actually bring together the Koch brothers and the Obama administration around criminal justice reform. So, you know, a lot is possible in politics, and it's, it's easy to be hopeless. But, but frankly, Donald Trump represents a very ugly creative possibility in American politics. Donald Trump ran against everything the Republicans believe in. He ran against free trade. 
He ran against Wall Street. He ran against the global financial elite that has made, you know, uh, uh, created a lot of damage in, in the Rust Belt in this country. And he won. So I don't like what he did with any of that. But the reality is he showed that if you have a kind of magic with people and you are able to communicate, like something as seemingly impregnable as the Republican Party's views on free trade and immigration and, and finance, were basically did a 180 because like one leader was good at talking. So that should actually be, in a way, a, a wake-up call for politicians on all sides, democratic socialists, centrist Democrats, all of the above, to say the ability to market a new set of ideas at the end of the day rests on the talent of people able to persuade the public of you know, positions that may have once been out of bounds, but not. Medicare for all was a crazy socialist idea like two years ago. Mm-hmm. It is now a centrist Democrat idea. Right? That's how our country changes. Bernie suggests something, it, it's a little bit dismissed, and then Barack suggests it two years later. That's how, that's how change happens, and it is happening. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So one of my absolute favorite magazines is The New Yorker. It's a magazine that represents the best writing in America today, and it's the place that I go to read sane news and analysis in today's very insane world. I don't think I would have actually made it through this week's chaos without reading Jane Mayer's explanation of the midterms at The New Yorker, Adam Davidson on Jeff Sessions being fired, or Susan Glasser's explanation of Trump's latest press conference meltdown and how there are more like this coming all on The New Yorker's website. The best part about The New Yorker is that it's not just breaking news and analysis, but you'll find yourselves engrossed in these multi-thousand word stories about something you had no idea you would soon become obsessed with, like The New Yorker's fascinating pieces on paper jams or fault lines or heirloom beans or even stink bugs. Yes, that's right. I said stink bugs. The topics they cover span the gamut from politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, the arts, science and technology, business, fiction, poetry, food, humor, and my personal favorite, their delightfully sarcastic and brilliant cartoons. And this is a magazine that continues to win incredible awards for their incredible writing. Just look at Hilton Al's Pulitzer Prize winning theater criticism or, of course, the scary and intimidating Ronan Farrow, whose Me Too stories led to the fall of Harvey Weinstein, Les Moonves, he also won a Pulitzer for that. And, of course, I absolutely love Jelena Cobb's brilliant writing on race, politics, history, and culture. Anyway, The New Yorker is offering Hive listeners a special, special treat this week. If you go to newyorker.com slash Hive, you know how to spell it, H-I-V-E, listeners of this podcast will save 50% when they enter the code Hive. With the special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. That is less than a hipster cup of coffee. Plus, you get an exclusive New Yorker tote bag. Do you know how cool you look when you walk around with a New Yorker tote bag? Uh, you can choose between print, digital, or a combo of print and digital subscription. You can subscribe to New Yorkers and read something that means something. Uh, that's 12 issues for $6 in a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash hive. Once again, the New Yorker, it's newyorker.com slash hive. Go get your free tote bag and your 12 issues for $6. I mean, so uh, we only have time for a couple more questions, but uh, two questions I have. Um, the first is, during the reporting of this book, what was the thing that kind of shocked you the most 
in a good or a bad way? What was the thing you lay in bed at night thinking about or did when you were writing it? I think the thing that surprised me the most was how many people secretly within these elite institutions, within the tech companies, within the philanthropy world, within Wall Street, how many people secretly agreed with me? Hmm. People, not an adversarial journalist like me, but people, younger people in these spaces working for these companies. And are they trying to make change within them or do they believe that it's better some than are, nothing? Some are not. It's, a, it's all of the above. So some of them, and, they, and many of them confess to me their, um, their doubts. You know, I think as a writer you're often just looking for proof that you're not crazy. And they would tell me stories like, it's actually so much worse than, than <laughs> even your reporting suggests. Um, but I think a lot of people, and it's often people who have experienced the wrong end of some power equation in life. It's often women, immigrants, people of color in those spaces who sort of believe in the power of a Facebook to make things better and also see the phoniness of that, who, who believe in the power of big philanthropy to make things better and also see the phoniness of that. And so I was amazed and I continue to be. I'm now, now that the book is out, I'm getting like so many messages a day from people who are confessing to profound misgivings about whether the institutions they're part of can be a part of the solution. And some of them think about leaving. Some of them do nothing. Some of them try to you know organize a little bit internally. Um, and I have suggested to them some of the things that they can do. For example, um, I think there should be a movement within tech companies to basically force their employers, Facebook, Google, and others, to make a disclosure, an annual report, an auditable report to employees every year on all their lobbying activities and political influence activities. Yep. These employees are in the dark well, about uh, what companies are doing with their work products. What we saw last week was an example with Google with the walkout that these people have a tremendous amount of power than the companies that they don't I don't Correct. think they realize yet. And I think they're they're discovering it. There's a I think Tech Workers Coalition is this group that's trying to organize people within these companies. Um, but the lobbying thing has really caught on among many of the people I've talked to is like one way to actually activate that power that tech workers have, particularly engineers who are so influential, is a lot of people don't know what their company is lobbying for. Yeah. They know what they do or their product or what the product's out in the world. A lot of them don't know what's happening in their DC office where they're spending 10 or 20 or $30 million a year lobbying, essentially against the public welfare, right? If you're spending $30 million a year in lobbying, you're not, you're not cheering on the people's representatives doing their job. You're trying to stop them from doing things they would do if you didn't spend $30 million on lobbying. Um, so that's something. And I, I am actually very hopeful that the, the post-Zuckerberg generation, right, which is crazy because he's only in his 30s, but there's now a group that in, in tech time is like a lot younger than him, that I think in many ways have a, a, a real sensitivity and awareness to the fundamental thing that that earlier cohort was totally blind to, which is power. If anything to me defines the blindness of that kind of Silicon Valley founder crop. It's just a total blindness to power and how power works and their own power and the fact of their own power. And I think this rising generation understands um, in a way that that older crew did not, that the fantasy that what is good for Google is good for the world, what is good for Facebook is good for the world, that is sometimes true, but it is often not true. And it's often not true because of how power works. If you could 
if someone said, hey, uh, there's this room down the street, and if you open the door, there's a power cord, and if you unplug it, it shuts off Facebook, would you? Yes. Without question? Until we can figure out what the hell's going on. I agree. I would do the same thing. Uh, I probably wouldn't have the same answer about Google. I agree, although I do think that Google is, as of late, doing some pretty evil stuff with the no, I search agree. engine and China. I think China. we need to break it up, and yeah. I, think we need, I, think, I think Google needs to be broken up, not unplugged. Would you pull, would you pull the plug on Twitter? Um, I would pull, if they can't figure out abuse, yeah, sure. I would pull the plug. Even though I, I use would it. cut off the plug. I would burn the house. I would make sure no one could ever plug it back in. No, I'm just kidding. I, think, I do think that – I agree. I think that these companies, if these, if these CEOs really cared, they would – they would pause and say, "Let's fix this." We I think. I think the thing that you're. I think the thing your listeners need to understand is none of these companies is like a public utility. They think they are. Yeah. They're totally private, profiteering companies, and so. And they are media companies. Correct. But they're not media companies the way the New York Times is a media company. Like, I would not say, like, let's shut down the New York Times for a month. Like, that would, there'd be real damage to <laughs> yes, democracy completely. if America was unwatched for a month by the New York Times. Yeah. There's no damage to democracy if Facebook or Twitter is shut down for yep. a month. And I want to make that clear. They are not the New York Times, nor will they ever be. And so, you know, the idea that, well, we have to balance it, yes. We could stop abuse if we shut that down, but we'd be cutting off a bunch of important speech. No, we don't need you. Like, we've been speaking to each other for a really long time as a country, and it's great that you're here, but it's not like balancing your harms against the good you do. Yeah. You have no right to be dumping harm into the society. If you can't certify that you're not dumping harm into the society in a way that is literally tipping our elections... You need to just shut down until you can certify that you're back and ready to, to exist in a way that is not um, corrosive of our democracy. Amen to that. All right, last question. So uh, I believe it was right after Trump had won, there was a, a CNN town hall with Nancy Pelosi and a few other people, and there was a college student that stood up and asked this question that I've actually heard asked quite a number of times um, since then, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and other places too. And the question was, do you think that capitalism actually works? Uh, or are we kind of learning because of the fact that we now have those three people that are worth the same amount of money as the bottom 3.6 billion um, and 50 million people in America, 50,000 people in America worth 50 million or more and so on, all those statistics. Is there a world in which, hey, it doesn't work properly and that maybe there's another thing that we should try or something like that? What are your thoughts? I, I think one of the difficulties with the conversation we have about capitalism is we're in denial about the number of flavors it comes in. Mm. It's got more flavors than Baskin-Robbins. Um, the Chinese do capitalism. They do authoritarian communist capitalism. Mm -hmm. The Indians do capitalism. They do it with the largest, paired with the largest affirmative action program in the history of the world that reserves 49%, I think, of government jobs and education seats for the historically downtrodden lower castes, right? Um, Europeans have various forms of capitalism. Socialist some capitalism. With socialist ca but they don't, they don't not have companies. Yeah. They don't not have financial markets. They all have that. And some of them do huge redistribution. Some of them, like Britain, do a little more than us and have 
you know, something like the NHS. Um, you have places that have essentially a capitalism that's, you know, within a racially homogenous small place. You have capitalism that's done in enormous multi, you know, uh, plural places. And, and then you and, have American capitalism. And, and so, <laughs> like so many things in this country, we imagine, you know, like the rest of the world watches American movies, but Americans don't watch other people's movies. It's sort of like that with capitalism. Like the rest of the world tends to be more aware of the fact there's like all kinds of different ways to do capitalism and so therefore you kind of want to look around at the buffet and say you know I kind of like this health system I like the Norway thing but it's kind of monoracial so that's not that helpful and you pick and choose whereas we tend to think it's like either we're capitalist or it's just gulags for everybody <laughs> and it's not yeah. there's a lot of flavors of capitalism so I think what the, what the place this conversation needs to go is how do we have a kind of economy that serves a society, where the society is the master of the economy and not the economy being the master of society. One way to understand neoliberalism, which is you know, the, the kind of worst word in the world for this really important thing, is that it puts money in charge of people instead of people in charge of money. And I think there is a way to think about an America in which capitalism has its place, but isn't the ruling ideology of this society, in which Mark Zuckerberg can build his business, but isn't in charge of our election results and the quality and toxicity of our political discourse, um, in which, frankly, it becomes easier to start a small business, which I think is actually something where the right has a point, um, but harder to rig the economy to protect your big business. Um, I think we need a better capitalism, and we need a capitalism that makes place for certain socialist elements. Um, like, I mean, public education is a socialist idea. Healthcare that the government provides is a socialist idea. Social security is, as the name sort of suggests, socialist. Medicaid is socialist. Interstate highway system, socialist. Last time I checked, you don't just use your own road that you paid for for the trip that you want to take. Mark Zuckerberg probably wants that. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, electricity, socialist. So I think we need to just have a deeper conversation that is less defensive about the proper relationship between what we do alone and what we do together. On that note, thank you so much, uh, Anand. The book is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It's a must-read. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much to my guest this week, Anand Girdahardas, and of course, John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with me, your host, Nick Bilton. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thank you so much to every single one of you who went out and actually voted. If you did not, please never listen to this podcast again. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks most of all to my sponsors, Groa, PayPal, OneBlade, and The New Yorker magazine. Please support all of them the same way you support this podcast. We will see you next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, 
I sit down with the New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.